All right, we're going to take a look at the book of Ezra. I'm not going to teach through the book of Ezra, but we're going to walk through it and see what happens. Uh, okay, so we're in the, the Old Testament, and we are in the period of the exile. And so what we're going to be reading about here is the return of Israel uh, to the promised land from Babylon. And then we're going to be taking a look at uh, how the Lord used one man. And then at the very end, we're going to look at why the Lord used that man and why that man was such a, uh, a good tool for the Lord to use. So again, the context is uh, somewhere 400 to 500 years before Christ, uh, Israel has been deported to Babylon. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Lots of things were, were going wrong in Israel. Israel was exceedingly unfaithful. So God deported Israel uh, to Babylon for 70 years, but he promised he would bring them back. And so we're going to read here in chapter 1 about how God brought that about, the return of some of the Jews to, to Jerusalem. And then we'll move forward from there and we'll read about some difficulties. And then what we'll do is we'll see where Ezra comes into the picture. So we're starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing, says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then verse 3, Whoever there is among you all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So God is working through a pagan king to return Israel from Babylon into Jerusalem. And then they're going to do some specific things there. You see at the middle of verse 3, to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Uh, everybody knew the temple had been destroyed. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar had come in and destroyed the temple and carried away everything. And so what we see here is God working to restore uh, worship of him by his people in Jerusalem. So in the, the following verses in that chapter, we see that God has worked to not only restore the rebuilding of the temple, but he's returning all of the vessels to the temple so that they can perform appropriate temple worship. Chapter 2 describes all of the people that are returning. And you, you see a very long list starting in verse 3 all the way down through verse 39. And then they describe the Levites that come back as well. And this is important for us to see that God is bringing the, the people back, but he's also bringing back people to lead them, people who know the law and understand the law. So chapter 2 talks about all of these people coming back. And then we see in chapter 3 that um, sacrifices are restored. You look at verse 4. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as is written. They offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And so Israel is, is beginning a pattern of obedience, an obedience that they didn't have prior to the exile. So this is really good. So the, the observances are there. And then starting in verse 8 in this chapter, in chapter 3, you see how the work to restore the temple is begun. And so the temple is being rebuilt. And this is really good because this is where God is going to be worshipped. This is where God is going to dwell together with his people. So it's important to have a temple to do this in. And Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the old temple, so they need to repair that. When you read chapters 4, 5, and 6, you, you read about difficulty in that. So the people return. There's an effort to rebuild the temple. There's opposition to rebuilding the temple. This is difficult. There are letters sent back to dignitaries and kings and people in authority 
that promote the hostility against Israel to um, rebuild the temple. So there's lots and lots of, of difficulty in rebuilding. And you can see that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, towards chapter 6, you see King Darius come into view. Uh, earlier before that was Cyrus. This is Darius. It's another king. And when you drop down to temp, uh, verse 13, you see that what is beginning there is the finishing of the work of rebuilding the temple. Um, and so the temple is rebuilt, it's restored. And when you look at verse 18 uh, in chapter 6, priests are appointed and Levites are appointed for the service of God in Jerusalem is written in the book of Moses. So everything appears to be restored and everything's good. Um, and so what happens then is Ezra comes into view in chapter 7. So there was difficulty rebuilding the temple, but the people persevered. God was kind. God was gracious. God worked in a lot of great ways. And the temple was restored. And now Ezra comes into view. Ezra is um, a priest. And you see that his lineage that's there in the beginning of chapter 7. And the king, who is the king at this time, is King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes um, gives Ezra his favor and he gives Ezra his authority. Ezra returns, and he is going to be used by God in, in mighty ways. Um, so we see the king's favor towards Ezra in terms of Ezra's return. There are additional utensils. There is additional things which allow worship to be ongoing in the temple, and it's all really good. Um, Ezra writes in verse 27 of chapter 7, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. I was strengthened according to the hand of Yahweh my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. So Ezra is coming back to um, the promised land. He's coming back to Jerusalem in chapter 8. There's a list of people who do this. Okay, and then what happens is you get down to halfway through chapter 8, Ezra sends for the Levites, and the Levites come to him. He wants to understand what is taking place. There is a fast that is prepared. When you get down to verse, uh, chapter 9, you, you find out something that's, that's very disturbing that's taking place. Uh, when these things had completed, there's been lots of setup, there's been lots of preparation. Um, things look really good. Read this. When these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations. What is happening there is the Jews that had returned before Ezra, and it includes the priests and the Levites, um, they had intermarried with those who had moved into the land after the Israelites were deported 70 years ago. And so there was intermarriage that was taking place. And when we read this, we read, we give a closer look. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. So there's, there's widespread disobedience from the very top all the way down. Ezra sees this in verse 3. He says, when I heard this matter, I tore my garments and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. The rest of this chapter talks about a prayer that Ezra makes and how grieved he is over the sin in Israel. And chapter 10 is the story of how the Lord used Ezra to resolve this very difficult problem. 
Um, this is a problem that, that doesn't just go away because marriages have been made and people are now married to these. And, and what, what must be done requires a lot of wisdom and a, a lot of leadership. So what I want to do is I want to take us back to chapter 7 and see why it is that God chose to use Ezra in all of this. This is a really good occasion for Israel. They've returned to the promised land. This was really good because God promised them, this is your land. I'm going to give you a king. But Israel messed it up with their sin. They even messed up the return. I want us to turn our, our attention to chapter 7, verse 10. And this is where we see the kind of man that Ezra is. This is where we want to be encouraged today. Again, Israel needed help. They, they needed leadership. They needed a man who had wisdom. They needed a man who loved the Lord. They needed a man who could lead Israel through this mess that was in front of them with the priests and the Levites leading Israel into sin with intermarriage. And this is what Ezra writes. Ezra had set his heart to do three things. He set his heart to study the law of Yahweh. So he set his heart to study the law. Um, it, was, it was within his heart. He had a, a conviction in his heart. He had a desire in his heart. He had an insatiable desire to study God's word, to know God's word, uh, to draw very near to God's word, to be very familiar with God's word. But we see that he didn't have that desire just to know God's word. We, we read that he, secondly, after studying the law, he set it in his heart to practice it. So his obedience wasn't a rote obedience. It wasn't, oh, this is something I need to do. It was from his heart that he was obeying. And then he didn't just have a, a, um, a personal practice and a personal obedience. Then we see the very natural thing that comes forth when you set your heart to study God's word. And when you set your heart to practice God's word or obey God's word, the most natural thing you do with that is the third thing that Ezra did was to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. So the Lord had prepared this situation all along. There was nothing that was taking place, the difficulties in rebuilding the temple or anything else that was out of God's wisdom, out of from under his control. Everything was proceeding according to his plan. And God identified one man to lead them out of this mess. And that man's name is Ezra. And the reason God chose him was because he loved God in his heart. And he set his heart to study the word and to practice the word and then to teach that word and to be useful. And this wasn't an academic instruction. This was this is what these people needed as they were returning to Israel and they were restoring a practice that wasn't even in place prior to their exile. It was really important that they understood the reason why all of this was happening. And so God selected a man who had affections for him to teach Israel what Israel needed to know in a way that wasn't academic it wasn't theoretical. It was real. It was really hard. But he, he chose a man who would study God's word, apply God's word to his own life, and then be fruitful and teach it to others. And that's the kind of man we want to be here today, guys. We want to be the kind of men who are faithful in our pursuit of God through his word, faithful in our pursuit of God through prayer. Uh, we want to be faithful in our obedience to God through his word. Uh, throughout our lives in every avenue of our lives, whether it's at home or at work or in our leisure, so that we can Im influence others with that same life, with a gospel that, that is powerful and rich and strong. So I want to just encourage you men to continue to read your Bibles, continue to pray, continue to set your heart on those things. Uh, because in the same way that God used Ezra, he can also use you 
in whatever your setting is, whether you're on the low end in your family or whether you're leading your family or whether you have lots of relationships at work or lots of relationships at school or whatever else, or you're retired, um, God can use you. So continue to pursue him with your heart and his word so that uh, you can be fruitful and ready to be used by him in whatever venue he has you in. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of experience, a lot of experience making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. So as I stand up here and talk to you this morning, um, I'm not perfect. And I have to listen to this occasionally myself and go through this lesson and these verses. But I'm going to be spending a lot of time reading. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture verses and also quotes. So as I go through this, um, I think you've got your notes. And there's a lot of that stuff that's listed in your notes. Um, in addition to that, um, there are sections that you have that we will not be covering today. But I went ahead and had them give them to you. So you could take a look at them and run through them with scripture and it's dealing with things like debt, spending, and so on and so forth. So spend some time taking a look at that. Um, so I can only touch on, on the subject of money briefly due to time. Um, in the time allotted, I want to give you some principles outlining in, outlining in scripture to discuss, your, uh, to discuss in your small groups. Okay, this session is not, this is not to tell you how to achieve your financial goals. It will provide you answers on how to formulate your financial goals. We are not going to talk about securities, uh, but security. We're not going to talk about insurance, but assurance. We're not going to talk about principle, but principles. We're not going to do net worth calculations, but we will see how God measures your net worth your life's worth. Today we are not going to talk about investments, taxes, cash flow, and insurance. We must first take a close look at what God has to say about money and his children. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversations necessary in the Christian life. Three, the conversation of the heart, which is what you guys are spending a lot of time on in build, the mind, which is related, and the purse. <clears throat> so there's 16 of 25 parables are about money or possessions. The Bible has 500 verses in, on prayer, but 2,350 verses on money and possessions. Why is money and possessions in Scripture so much? Why? It's because your use of money shows your heart. Everything we hear about today is dealing with your heart. So when we are discussing money, it's about your heart. Psalms 1.1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Please, guys, you have to understand that there may be places and there may be people that you talk to about your finances and stuff that are experts in their area. But you've got to remember, you've got to go back to Somebody in the church, an elder, or someone that you feel has the experience in order to be able to counsel you on money. So you need godly, godly um, advice. Our use of money is very personal. You guys don't talk about it very much, do you? You don't talk to other people about it. We just don't share with others. Much of life revolves around the use of money. During your normal week, how much time do you spend 
earning money in your job, making decisions on how to spend money, thinking about where to save and invest money, or praying about your giving. Think about it. It's a lot of time. Fortunately, God has prepared us adequately for these tasks by giving us the Bible as his blueprint for handling money. Your use of money is a measure of your maturity. Uh, Money is all around us. It is practically in everything you do. Therefore, it becomes easy to love. That's one of the dangers right there. You become proud of your accomplishments and the money these accomplishments make. When you think about your finances, when you personally think about your finances, no matter whether you have much or little, do you have a feeling of fill in the blank? Regret? Feel like that you are handling it properly? How, are you, how do you feel about it? Fill in your blank. So, to start off this session, we're going to talk about, first of all, talk about the core to this the situation with money. So how you view God determines how you live. One of the 250 names God calls himself is master. Remember that word, master. 250 names. One of him one of his names is master. Psalms 135:6 Whatever the Lord pleases he does in heaven and earth. Isaiah 45, 6 through 7, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12, everything in the heavens and the earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as being in control of everything. Riches and honor come from you alone, and you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might, and it is your, at your discretion that men are made great and given strength. The name that best describes God's part in our stewardship of his assets is master. Do you accept God, God's role as your master? Let's look at what the Bible says about how God is our master in the area of money and possessions. Ownership, Psalms 24, 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalms 50, 10. For every beast of, uh, of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. We, in our mind, must transfer our ownership to the Lord. When we acknowledge God's ownership, every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. No longer do we ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with your money or my money? The question is restated, Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? When we have this perspective, spending and saving decisions are equally as spiritual as giving decisions. We, th- this is a phrase that I want, to, want you guys to indwell in your head and think about it. 
all we are and all we have, we receive from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. If he is master, do we act like a slave? Slave. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created us. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with the perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we belong to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, therefore, he owns us in two ways. He created us, and he redeemed us. So you are a slave. We are slaves to Christ, and a slave has no legal rights. We belong entirely, entirely to the master who has, compl has complete control. Slaves cannot own anything. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? We are slaves to obedience. <clears throat> all we are and all we have we received from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. Contentment. To learn to be content, you must recognize God as the owner of all your possessions. This is the proof that you believe God is the owner. God as the owner of all your possessions. This is the, pre the prerequisite to contentment. If you believe you own a single possession, that it's yours and yours alone to control, <clears throat> then the circumstances affecting that position will be reflected in your attitudes. How do you feel when, you're, when you buy a new car? Think about it a second. When you bought your last new car, how do you feel? New or used, doesn't matter. Just think about it a second. How do you feel when your new car is dented two, to two days later? Can you say, well, God, I don't know why you want a dent in the side of your new car, but you certainly have a big one. So if something favorable happens to that possession, then you're happy. If something bad occurs, you will be discontent. Is that true? It is far too easy to think that possessions we have and the money we earn are entirely the result of our skills and achievements. We must understand and believe that we have not earned the right to their ownership. We const constantly need to be reminded that God owns all of our possessions. He also owns us. Psalms 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Exodus 19.5, for all the earth is mine. What happens when you don't acknowledge that God is the owner of all we have? 
but I want to hear what you guys, what some of your guys' thoughts are. If you don't, if you do not acknowledge that God is the owner of all we have, what happens? What happens to us? Okay, very good. What else? Selfish. Selfish, yes. Discontent. Pride. We earned it, and we take pride in in in, in what is given to us. What else? Yes, we feel we have rights before God. Build your own kingdom. Yep. What about stewardship? Stewardship suffers. You do what you want with what you have. You begin to go into debt. What else? One more. Fear. Fear. Okay. What about not being generous? Generosity goes off off the scale. So, what we also need to think about in this in this process is provision. In other words, what God has is guaranteeing us as far as our money and possessions. Philippians four nineteen. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So this is what he's promising us. So let's dive into this real quick. He will provide us with our needs. And he has not promised us to provide our wants. So we have to distinguish between needs and wants. He promises to provide our needs and he tells us to be content when these needs are met. Contentment, 1 Timothy 6 8. And if and if we have food and covering with these these we shall be content. This is another measure of having turned over ownership, is contentment. It's proof that we've basically turned over ownership. What is the difference between a need and a want? Let's be honest. We almost all have what we need. We don't have what we want. And desire. We say the wrong thing. I need a new car. This isn't correct. It should be, I want a new car, or I desire a new car. 1 Timothy 6 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. A need is a basic necessity of life. It's food, clothing, and shelter. God's part in helping us reach contentment is that He has obligated Himself to provide our needs. He has not promised to provide our wants. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in, in the glory of Jesus Christ Jesus. Be content when God doesn't grant your wants. Listen to this. Be very grateful and give thanks when he does grant you your wants. Remember that you are only a custodian of his assets. We and all, we, all we are and all we have, we receive from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. Remember that. Drill a hole in your head and stick it in there. So what is discontent? We talk about contentment. What about discontent? It is not discontent to want a new car or a washing machine. The problem is, 
to be discontent with the old car and washing machine when you cannot afford a new. A good measure of one's content, discontent or dissatisfaction is consumer debt. That's what you keep an eye on. People buy things they don't need with money they don't have. Discontent is the beginning of covetousness. Desiring more than one needs, desiring what another possesses, being greedy. So, that's just a broad view of God as being our master. I'm going to also, I want to also read some more scripture, which I think you probably have in your notes, on that, on that aspect of God being in, in control and being master. So, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Leviticus 25, 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourns with me. Job 41.11, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Is there any doubt that he's not the master? Unless we understand his absolute ownership, and see our relationship to God as our owner, we cannot approach the subject of stewardship in a meaningful way. So guess what our next subject is? Stewardship. It's your management of God's funds. <clears throat> yes, a man is a creature and a dependent being. It follows that he is a steward, not an owner. First Chronicles 29, 14, All things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Think about that verse. Let me read the last phrase again. From your hand we have given you. This is a prayer of thanks that God that gives God all the credit, even for the people's generosity. Your generosity came from God. So what's a steward? Definition of a steward is the careful management of wealth, resources, avoidance of waste, by careful planning and use, thrift or thrifty use. The Greek word used for stewardship means economy. This means it is someone who manages someone else's household. When you think of scripture, who, who, what reminds you of Old Testament, of, of Old Testament characters? Joseph, he was a steward. A, um, so does your money and possessions belong to you? No. Do your kids belong to you? No. We are stewards of God's assets. You're placed in, in a position of managing those assets. A steward must be faithful, honest, have integrity, be loyal. The steward must lay aside self-interest, and think only of welfare of the one whose property he is handling. Think back on your past financial decisions and stuff. Is that what you do? I didn't do that for a lot of years. So this, this, this requires complete, complete surrender to be a steward. 
Romans 12:1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Have you yielded your whole self to, Jesus, to the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. Why do we imagine that we could manage our lives better than he could? How much do you trust God? Really, how much do you trust? Do you trust him to show, show you how to be a good steward of his assets? To turn it over to him? <clears throat> the love of Christ now controls me. Any property I have as well as my life itself, is seen as a divine stewardship. A divine stewardship. So this leads us right into the area of giving. It is a evidence of you having accepted the role of being a steward. The biblical steward is commanded to give what he has decided in his heart to give, but not reluctantly or under compulsion. When we talk about the heart, we must talk about giving. Tithe was an obligation commanded to the Israelites under the law. A tithe was seen as 10%. Genesis 14.20, he gave him a tenth of all. We are not under the law, but under grace. There is no place, no command in the New Testament that says the Christian must tithe. Think about that. We are outside of this rule, the Old Testament tithe. 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. That means it's consistent, your giving is consistent and regular. We can learn principles of stewardship from Old Testament teachings, but the matter of giving, giving for the believer in Christ in this present day of grace is not based on legal obligation. It comes from your heart. Here's a quote. If a, if a believer decides in his own heart out of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that he will give of his earnings to the Lord, he is free to do so and will be blessed in it. But he must not do it as if giving were a legal obligation and underline this, and he must not do it with the idea that the other nine-tenths of his own of his own to do with what he pleases without consulting the Lord. So it's still all his. So really, what percentage or, or how much? Some believers use the Old Testament 10% measuring as a measuring stick, believing that this ought to be the least that should be given. As he has pur purposed in his heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, the decision as to how much is left up to the individual believer. We have no right to tell other believers that what they ought to give. It is our obligation to instruct others 
in the Word of God and its principles of stewardship. Let me repeat that. It is our obligation to instruct others in the Word of God and its principles of stewardship. That's as far as it goes. It is each one as he has purpose in his heart. When you read the incident or the situation with Zacchaeus, and when you go through the scripture verses pertaining to that, you could tell that Christ looked at Zacchaeus after Zacchaeus made those promises. He made the promises to give back you know, everything that he had taken inappropriately and four times over. Well, when, when he made that, those promises, how did Christ know that he would do it or that he was you know, honest in what he was promising? He looked at his heart. And at that point in time, I think he had been given a new heart. So what are the rules for giving? Do not, be, do not give begrudgingly under compulsion. Be a cheerful giver. Still meet your primary obligation. I want to read 1 Timothy 5.8. I think this is a primary, a primary item that must be met before you uh, start looking at giving. 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his, his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How much more serious is that? Can't be any more serious. I think this is top of the list. You must provide for your own. The true motive for in giving is that it is not to receive something in return. It is a love towards God. Remember that. The next two items under the rules for giving are related. Obligatory giving, especially if one tries to lay the obligation on another, is a form of legalism. Remember that. Legalism. This side. Random, careless, occasional giving is a form of anatonium. Anatoniumism. How many of you can pronounce that? Grace will abound. In other words, I can sin because I'm forgiven. That's on this side. And this reminds me of a quote from Luther, Martin Luther. And I, I'm not going to read the entire quote, but I'm going to give you a, a summary of it. He basically compares some Christians to a drunkard who's sitting on his horse and he falls off onto the right side. Then he gets back on his horse and then he falls off on the left side. What he's trying to say, and he's using this in, in, as an illustration of Christians that aren't right-minded. You know, a drunk person is not right-minded. And they can't stay on the horse. They keep falling off to the left or fall off to the right. And he's using that as an illustration as far as um, um, something like this. This is the difference between legalism and grace will abound. Falling off one side of the horse is legalism. Falling off the other side of the horse is grace will abound. Neither are correct. So, what's the, what's the use of the horse? The horse is, is that if you're on the ground, you're not going anywhere. If you're on the horse, you're, the idea is that you're progressing and moving forward. And if so, if you're not on the horse, then you're not, if you don't get, 
if you don't get this stuff right, if you don't get things like man's responsibility and, and God's sovereignty, if you don't get those things correct, uh, doctrines of grace, for example, then you're not moving forward. Your spiritual life is not growing and moving and going someplace. You've got to be on the horse. Okay, I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. And so bear with me as I go through this, because you'll see where we're heading with this. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from the poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need, remember need, in whatever he lacks. Beware, lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year of the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall, be, shall not be grieved when you give it to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother in your needy and poor in your land. So our giving to the church shall be the giving to the church shall, shall, should only be the beginning of your giving, not the limit. So the year of remission means that a loan turns to a gift. And so if you're getting close to that year of remission, it's a gift, even though it says it's a loan. So the idea there is give it to them. Offerings are used to meet the needs of the poor. It says, you minister to Christ when you give to the poor. Proverbs, here's several verses. I'm not going to read each one of these, but Proverbs 21, 13, Proverbs 28, 27, and Jeremiah 22, 16. So John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because, because God loved, he gave. Love must be the motivator of our giving to those in need. God is it give as if to the Lord, otherwise it is only charity. If it is to the Lord, it's an, it's an act of worship. Acts twenty thirty five. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew six twenty one, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Giving is not God's way of raising money. It is God's way of raising people, Christians, into the likeness of his son. He doesn't need your money. He already owns it all. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Instruct them to, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, there is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. Scattering would be giving. 
and yet they increase. And there is one who withholds that is justly due, but it results only in want. You withhold it, but then you want more, you want more. The man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Watering is giving. He, he ends up being watered himself. Psalms 37.21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. What's the correlation between those two? We have the wicked and we have the righteous. But the second part of it, does not pay back a debt. He borrows and does not pay back. The second half of the righteous is, is gracious and gives. How do those two compare? You see any correlation there? It's, it's, it, it was strange to me when I first read that verse. And over time, as learning about debt, I realized what he was saying. The first thing is, is that the but, the but is that requires faithful stewardship. So the wicked borrows, does not pay back. But this is the stewardship side. What's the correlation between debt and giving? And we, in, my, in your notes, we'll cover debt and talk about some of this, some of this stuff. But I'm going to cover just a smidgen of this, just hit the tip of the iceberg on debt. What's the, what's the main thing in your, when you go through your budgeting, what's the main thing that's affected? affects your giving it's your debt if you're in debt and you got you have to pay your debt or if you don't have money to pay your debt you can't give so debt is a detriment to giving Jim Elliot he is not this is his quote he is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose I think that pertains to money and possessions too. What we can keep after life is what we give away during life. Sometime you need to sit down and read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Write that down. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. This is the richest, most detailed model of Christian giving in the New Testament. You want, to, you want to learn about giving? Go to chapters 8 and 9. Giving of self to the Lord, it follows that everything one has belongs to God. I can't quit repeating that. We say you have given yourself to... You say you've, we have all said that we've given ourselves to Christ. Do we show it in our actions? Uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. And, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Your money is the acid test of this reality. Them first gave themselves to the Lord. That means you became a Christian. You were a follower of Christ. And to us by the will of God. Then they in turn gave of themselves through possessions, time, energy to the fellow, their fellow Christians. So generous giving follows personal dedication. You have to have the personal de dedication first and then 
generosity and giving. True wisdom with money belongs by ex- begins by accepting God's ownership, and that wisdom provides the framework for your financial disciplines. Faithful stewardship promotes good planning, spending, budgeting, investing, and managing God's money. Have you accepted Christ as being the owner of your assets? Does God's ownership help you understand more clearly your stewardship responsibilities? Some some things to think about. Giving becomes a reflection of what God has done for us. We are the recipients of his grace, and he creates in us a desire to be gracious. Is this true? Is that desire there? Paul expressly said he was not commanding the believer to give. He suggested and encouraged them to give us to give as a way to prove the sincerity of their love. Let them show their love in reality. Paul desires giving voluntarily as being obedient. Giving tests your genuineness of your faith. So, how do you give? What are the parameters for basically giving? What's in scripture for how you proceed to, to give? You know, the first item that, that I run across is uh, give first fruits, Proverbs 3 9. What are first fruits? What, what's first fruit in, in, today, in today's society? You know, most of us are, are not farmers. So you can't say, well, it's the first days, it's the first days of, of uh, picking the crop. So, but what are first fruits now? Or what could be first fruits? The best part of something. Okay, the best part of something. What else? First paycheck. What else? What's that? Pre-tax income. Okay. Never heard of that one before, but that's good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it could be anything you think of, but. Each one of us needs to determine what's our what's our first fruits, and look at that. If there is a desire to 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 give that, you define it. You figure out what it is. But I still think it, it, there's an indication here of look at first fruits as being a opportunity to give. Uh, okay, so how should we give? Give proportionately. First Corinthians sixteen two. I'll let you guys go back and look up some of these, these verses. Give sacrificially. Now this one we're gonna we're gonna go through and read this. Give sacrificially. Second Corinthians eight two and three.
that in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Liberality is basically um, giving. It's generosity. Verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So you have three elements of giving in here. According to their ability is giving, giving is proportionate, not fixed amount or percentage. So it's basically what they felt like they could give, what came from their heart. And then beyond their ability is beyond that. And the third element is their own accord, voluntary, not of compulsion, manipulation, or intimidation. It all comes from the heart. So how do you give sacrificially, mechanically? It's, it can be in a, a rearrangement of priorities. You might redo your finances. You might redo you know, the budgeting that you've done you know, for setting aside money for this or that. So it's in a rearrangement of priorities in order to give sacrificially beyond what you normally would be giving. It's a, it's a cha change of lifestyle. You could have to make a change of lifestyle. Instead of having that Starbucks coffee every single morning, you eliminate that. And the third item for giving sacrificially is a forfeiture of something valued. So those are three examples of how you could um, give sacrificially. It's not an emptying of the closet or the garage of the unused items. So getting back to how we give, give regularly. That's 1 Corinthians 16.2. Give cheerfully, Acts 20.35 and 2 Corinthians 9.7. And the last one is give quietly. Quietly. Matthew 6.1. It's not to be preached to the, to the congregation. Here's a, here's a quote. This is, this is a really good quote. There is a great joy in giving, for we, have not merely we, for we are not merely fulfilling a basic responsibility, but in truth are opening our hearts to the goodness of God. It is in such giving that we become generous people. It is in such giving that we become grateful people. Indeed, it is in such giving that we become godly people. So one other question that I wanted to ask at this point in time is, let's go to Matthew 6.20. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, all, will be also. And in other places there in Scripture, it speaks about treasures in heaven. 
Um, how do you store treasures in heaven while you're on this earth? How do you do that? What do you do? Any thoughts? Okay. Yes. Okay. What about your possessions? A couple of general ideas on how you store up your treasures in heaven is it's whatever you do to invest in God's kingdom here on earth. You know, su supportive of and the furtherance of God's kingdom. So that's, it's, it's giving of your time, energy, talent, money to things like missionaries, the church, the growth of the church, spending time counseling and bringing along the maturity of other Christians. It's all of that stuff. That's the treasures. And your money and your assets are a great big part of that, whether it's much or little. It's the idea that it comes from your heart and you are basically helping to furtherance God's kingdom. Um, I want to recommend a, a book, and I'm still trying to get a hold of this. John MacArthur's book, right here. It's very short, but it's right to the point. It's 22 pages. This book is called Our True Riches Are in Heaven. And he goes through your money, your finances, and your talent on how to, to store up your treasures in heaven. I recommend any one of you to, to get a hold of this. I'm trying to buy a box of them. I can't get them right now, but maybe they'll be coming out here pretty quick. But our true riches are in heaven. Okay, I think you've got a page in your stuff that's, that's key quotes. And I just wanted to run through some of these real quick. I think they're, they're thought-provoking. So some, some things that you can you know, put some thought into. So, so we aren't under the law and the tithe just as long as we don't use that as justification for giving less. Next quote, giving is, is the only antidote to materialism. Giving 10% is a place to start, not to place a place to stop. What do you think about that first phrase? Phrase, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Is that true? Giving is the only antidote to, to materialism. What do you think? That's very true. I don't know if it's the only antidote. I think it's a key antidote. 
But you know, if if you're not if you're concerned about materialism, if you have much, the way to eliminate this idea of materialism in your life is give it away. Next quote, as I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. And that comes back to that same thing, uh, riches in heaven. That, that should be something that's on your mind thinking about all the time because it's not easy to quantify. You can't, it's not something that you can put your hands on. Um, so that's, that would be a good study in scripture. How do you put your riches in heaven? When people say, I cannot afford to give, ask them, if your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? No, then you've admitted that you can afford to give. It's just that you don't want to. I don't know who, who has that quote, but I thought that was kind of interesting analogy. The next one says, there is more said about money directly and indirectly in Scripture than any other subject other than salvation. Here's some key stats. 20% of Christians give 80% of the church revenue. We've heard that for years, and it continues to be that way. 44% of professing Christians give nothing. Uh, the average American Christian uh, gives 2 to 3% of their income. And the question is, are they really Christians? So they're basically polling also um, professing Christians that are not. But still, it's interesting to look at it. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world's money earners. So, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to go through quickly, and some of this stuff would have been in the second session of this, which we're trying to combine these two together. But I wanted to go through the 10 financial principles from the, from the Bible. And these are just in general principles pertaining to your assets. Um, and what I wanted to ask is, um, as you read through these, which ones do you need help with? Okay, God is the source, which is one subject that we went through today. Give to show your gratitude and stewardship. And I think this list is also in your handout. It may be further back. But um, give to show your gratitude and stewardship. It's okay to save for the future. Uh, number four is minimize debt. Five is be content. Six is set goals and make a budget. That's planning. Seven would be work hard. Work hard as, as, as unto the Lord. Eight is provide for your family, which that was the mark first that we went through. That's primary. Number nine is seek godly counsel. And number 10 is pray to be a good steward of God's assets. So just go through that. Use that as a guide to, to assess your life and where you are with your finances. See, see how these things line up with, with how you're doing. Now the question I want to ask back to you guys, it's one of the questions I think you're going to talk about in your small group, but I, I, I always want to find out to see what your guys' thoughts are on what surprises you about what Scripture tells us about our money. 
that we talked about today. So what, what was shocking or surprising to you, in, if anything? And it, see, it, if, if you look at the history of this church, this church, it, it, people come and go, um, but it seems like our giving has, is sufficient to meet our needs. And it's just amazing how complicated that is. You can't analyze it and say, okay, well, this segment gives so much, this segment gives so much. It, there's no answer. The answer is that God's in control, and guess what? He's providing our needs. So, what else? Anything else that kind of surprised you? I think the idea that when we're giving um, to God, we're, we're giving to Him what already belongs to Him. And what surprises me is that our desire to give comes from Him. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's not wrong. It's it's not it's not condoned and it's not discouraged. In other words, discouraged from the standpoint of being you can't have debt. You can have debt. You know what what Scripture tells us, but you have to control it. You also have to not use it in order to increase your standard of living. Here's a phrase. Here's a phrase that's that's that I've heard, you know, in my studies. And they they say, um, act your wage. So don't live beyond your income or equal to your income. Live below that. So you have extra. Any other comments about? Were you surprised how many scripture verses pertain to God as being master and owning everything? It is all over scripture. So that cannot be denied. So. Now, one thing I want to spend just a few minutes on, which I think will be beneficial. Again, this would have been something that we cover in the next session, but I want to cover it now. And this is key quotes, or key questions, key questions that I'm sure most of you have had and wonder about. Um, we're just going to touch on them briefly. Uh, it's, it's, it's things to, to cause you to wonder and to also study and research. So does, does the Bible say that money's evil? Okay, First Timothy six ten, you know the love of money is evil. Um, also, First Timothy four um, four through five, 
Um, the people who use money have the potential to be evil. Money itself is not evil. Is it possible to both follow God and make money and make money? Luke 16:3. You cannot serve two masters, so make sure it's not a master. And here's use use money, but don't serve it. Money makes a good servant to those who have the right master. Money makes a terrible master. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Uh, Philippians 4, 11 through 12. Paul is living with much or little. He's being content in either situation. Is it right for Christians to have material possessions and enjoy them? Deuteronomy 16, 15. You know, we're placed on this. Actually, Ecclesiastics is, is a great book to take a look and answer that question. And if you have time, go back and pull up Smedley's series on Ecclesiastics and look at when he covers chapter 5, 18 through 20. There's a place for possessions and, and, and assets and money. But you've got to make sure that you, you control whether you love it or not. It's, there's these, these items are here for us to enjoy life with, thank, with, and this is the caveat, with thanksgiving. How many times have you thanked God for whatever's happened in your life monetarily? Thank Him continuously. That's one of the big mistakes, in the, especially in the New Testament, um, for, for individuals that get themselves into trouble is that they don't thank God. They aren't thankful for what he's given them, for giving them what their wants are. Um, another question is, how much can we keep? How much should we keep? In other words, save. Here's John Piper's quote. The issue is not how much a person makes. Big industry and big salaries are a fact of our times, and they are not necessarily evil. The evil is in being deceived thinking into thinking a hundred thousand salary must be accompanied by a hundred thousand dollar lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. Um, those who happen to be rich simply as a result of circumstances, hard work, or wisdom have done nothing wrong. They must not withhold their riches, that's the giving, which are really God's, from kingdom causes, including helping the needy. So it's, it's, it's what you do with your assets. Is savings ever wrong? This continuation of the previous question. Is savings wrong? And I got to say that you know it depends. It depends on what it's for. Proverbs six eight is six six and eight six six and eight, and Joseph it, um, it, that deals with Joseph and him setting aside assets of Egypt in order to get through the famine. And they apparently they had they had 
all the world, practically all the world's supply of, of whatever food and assets that they needed uh, during that period of time. But the idea on saving, it depends on what it's for. Here's some, here's some good things and bad things for savings. Greed, if it's greed that you're saving. If you're a miser, pinch, you pinch pennies um, out of fear um, and you're not depending on God. Here's some good things for retirement, for future purchases. That's being a good steward. Instead of borrowing the money, you're saving for future purchases. A provision for rainy day or famine. Uh, Proverbs, here's Proverbs that, that encourage savings. You got Proverbs 21.20. You got Proverbs 21.5. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. That's the ant. That's the ant setting aside. Genesis 41.35 through 36. That's Joseph. Saving should be secondary to giving. Uh, when you save, lay, lay something aside for the future need, but hold it loosely. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just look to you for answers in our lives. We, don't, we know that the manual is the Bible and that that's where we need to spend time in. And so too many times we just get too busy and we just don't do it. And Lord, we know that if we were to spend time, you would speak to us and give us the answers and give us clear guidance. And, and we just pray that you will... Open up our heart, open up our minds so that we can spend the time that we need to in your word. And we can also look at our finances and, and reassess and rethink through this, and especially when we meet in two weeks to go through the questions. And that we've had a chance from between now and then to, to evaluate our situations. And, and each one of us can make changes in order to to better be um, stewards of your of your assets and help us to continually look at it, continually desire to want to look at it and to change, dear Lord. And we just praise your name in Jesus' name, amen.